Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell, laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Linda Flanagan. She is a journalist, researcher, and a former cross-country and track coach. She's also a founding board member of the Positive Coaching Alliance and an advisory group member for the Aspen Institute's Reimagining Sports Initiative. Linda is a mother of three and a lifelong athlete. She lives with her family in New Jersey, and her new book is Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids' Sports and Why It Matters. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Money and mania, which is worse, is the money or the mania worse? <laughs> yes, they're inextricably linked. You can't separate one from the other, I'm afraid. They're both terrible, though. So, I mean, we can see it with our own eyes, right? That youth sports has transformed dramatically from the backyard wiffle ball that happened when I was a kid. But walk us through some of the main ways that you believe youth sports have changed and commodified in the last couple of decades. Right. You know, I do think it's important to acknowledge that there's always been issues with youth sports. You know, just this morning, I was watching a Saturday Night Live skit from about 30 years ago that had Will Ferrell as an insane parent in the stand, you know, shrieking at his son. It was hilarious, you know. (laughs) So these problems have been around for a while. What's changed is that, well, I identify three main things. The first is money. There's a ton of money invested in youth sports. A lot of adults count on the money coming from parents to, you know, pay their mortgages and pay their staff. It's a massive industry. It's now a $19 billion industry, which is kind of hard to fathom when you compare it to the NFL, which is a $15 billion industry. All right. So break that down. So the NFL spends or earns for everybody around it $15 billion a year. Correct. Sports for kids. Do you include college in that? Like what sports are included in the $19 billion? Yes. It's a large number that's sort of bandied about all the time. Mm -hmm. Any article you read about youth sports, it talks about it being a $19 billion industry. And this is a number that came from Wintergreen Research, which is an organization that really studies youth sports. And that $19 billion goes to, it's really the biggest companies are Nike, Adidas, the other equipment manufacturers, about five of them, the media companies, the sports media companies, ESPN, the Sky Network, Yes Network. And then there are others like Gatorade and actually UFC. So it's just a giant, giant industry. You know, there are more investors in it as well and more technology companies that are, you know, startups trying to get in on this. It's, you know, as one of my 
subjects said it's there's never been a better time to invest in youth sports than now. Well, and there has to be some sort of trickle down or trickle up effect. Maybe my husband is from a small town in Texas and made famous by the Friday night lights. The idea that like in these crazy places, people, I mean, I think that book's probably 20, maybe 25 years old. Yeah. That the idea that like, wait a minute, guys, there are stadiums where high school kids play and there are jumbotrons in that stadium. Mm -hmm. And now that's every school. I mean, we played growing up on fields, right? Like it was, there was a field out back and that's where the sports happened. But it seems to me now that that's the norm. So one of the biggest catalysts for the change in youth sports happened in 1997 when Disney made a decision to open the wide world of sports complex in Florida. And what I learned in my research on this is that it was a very conscious decision on the part of executives to try to get, as they put it, more heads in beds. That's how they make money is renting out, you know, getting people to go to their hotels and theme parks. But they recognized that they were losing the teenage cohort because, you know, teenagers aren't so interested in the Magic Kingdom anymore. So they made a calculated decision to build the wide world of sports complex to attract families with teenagers. And it proved to be wildly successful. Now, it's, the number is always changing. But when I last checked, it was a 700,000 square feet of playing fields. I mean, it was news to me, too, that Disney built wide world of sports to create tournaments so that people would come to Disney. I mean, it makes sense when you hear it. Yeah. But that's trickled down to you got to be taking your fourth grader to a lacrosse tournament in Orlando because that's just best practices now for a kid playing sports, right? That's where the trickle down really affects yes. all of us. That It's become what you have to do, not what you could do if you wanted to. Yes. Well, and since the wide world of sports complex opened, there have been 10 times the number of those sports facilities have opened up. So since 1997, there are now something like 30,000 of those complexes, obviously not as large as Disney's, but I mean, that is a massive number. That's why you have jumbotrons all over the place that used to be reserved just for Texas. And it is the expectation that if your child has an interest in sports, that they're going to be on these teams and travel hither and yon to be seen and to stay competitive as much as anything. I think one thing that has really changed, and it's kind of a big question, but it seems like the underlying question is what is the point of sports? Why pursue sports? Mm -hmm. And that that has sort of changed from like, it keeps you out of mom and dad's hair and like, it's something to fill your days and get out there and like kids like sports. You know, there's always, my dad loved sports and you know, he was born in the thirties. It ended up being a bat boy, was very into sports, but certainly his parents had no involvement of that. Basically he lived near Ebbets Field. He would walk over to the, Ebbets Field is a huge oldie locks alert. Back in my day, it was the Brooklyn Dodgers stadium back in the forties. What do people see as the point of sports now? Well, you know, it depends on who you ask, mm -hmm. but I think most parents would still cling to the idea or at least articulate the idea that they want their kids to play because of the valuable life lessons and the discipline and the exercise and teamwork and these kinds of ideals about what, you know, probably why your father played sports and why I played sports, why my parents wanted me to play sports, because it kept us out of trouble. It was a constructive activity and you could learn some things. And I think most parents would say that today at least when they start. 
But I think over time, the investment become of time and money becomes so great. If your child continues to play in high school, through high school, if they started in elementary school playing on a travel team, and suddenly it has just ballooned into this all-encompassing activity, there has to be some other reason besides, well, they learn life lessons. And I think what I've seen and, and learned from parents is that there's the default posture, which is, well, it should help her get her into a better college. It's like there has to be some greater goal than just, you know, learning discipline. And I think it has, you know, unfortunately, and this is so disillusioning to me as a coach when I started coaching to learn that by high school, this is a real, you know, a very big concern for a lot of parents that it wasn't about what sports could do for the kids' growth and development. It was about what it could do for their college prospects. At least, the- Which is not to put all of the blame on the sports because you do talk in the book about the more time we invest, the more we spend. You give us a bit of research that says families spend $693 per year per kid per sport. So if you've got three kids each playing a couple sports, right? And we're spending every weekend standing around in some field for a tournament two hours from our house, right? And staying in hotels. The more time we spend, the more money we spend, the more invested we become. Yeah. And then, I mean, you can lose the script as a parent, right? You can have your kids saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And you're like, what do you mean? I just hired you a pitching coach. What do you mean you don't want to do it anymore? We're 20 grand into this thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. And by the way, that number, that 693 number, that is a very conservative estimate. Yeah. It sounds low. Yeah, that's only for, that was an Aspen Institute study along with the Families and Sport Lab at Utah State that looked at just families that had kids in, you know, like the non-private programs. If you, there are other studies looking at the cost of sports for families that only do the private teams and the numbers are much higher. Something like 20% or 25% pay 500 a month per child. And some 20% pay 12000 a year per child. You know, it depends very much on what kind of level of sports they're playing. It's, it can be astronomical. And it does seem in our conversation so far about sports, that I have three children, none of whom play organized sports. I had a kid who was a gymnast and he lost interest in it. But my kids play a lot of sports. We have usually like a bunch of kids who come over Friday night and they always organize a game, whether it's sharks and minnows or basketball pickup or stick, whatever they play, you know. And the reason they do it is because it's fun. And it's interesting that we've had a this long of a conversation about sports. And I think that's the first time we've used that word. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point, you know, and that kind of free play, like you talk about with your son doing, that's where kids really learn the most from sports. You know, there, I don't know if you ever interviewed the psychologist, Peter Gray, who wrote, he's kind of the authority on free play. He's like, his argument is that this is where kids actually learn their life lessons and about getting along with others, because it's when adults aren't standing around enforcing rules and telling them to tuck in their uniforms that Kids have to figure out how to keep other kids playing, how to, you know, balance teams. The goal is to keep the game going. So you have to kind of negotiate and compromise with all the kids on the team. You have to modify the rules as need be, depending on skill level. And that it's this kind of free play that in which kids really learn and in which it's fun because the, the point is to have fun. And like your son's experience you know, that's what's lost when it's strictly like organized stuff. The other thing we hear about sports is that the reason our kids have to do them is that they build character, 
We're going to take a break and find out when we come back if that's true or not. We're talking to Linda Flanagan and her new book is Take Back the Game. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew. And believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro (laughs) aunt at this point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking... I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, Hellions. You know we listen to a lot of podcasts that aren't our own, and today we want to tell you about a podcast that really speaks to us and will speak to any parent of a child with special education needs. The podcast is called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. One of my kids has an IEP, and I found this podcast so validating and so helpful. I feel better equipped to advocate for my child's educational needs now. This podcast is helpful for parents in many different situations, whether your child already has an IEP or you're just starting to wonder if they might need extra support in the classroom. Juliana has content for kids of all ages and for kids who are learning English as an additional language as well. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Okay, so Linda, everybody knows sports build character, right? That's been proven. That's totally true. And that's why they have to play sports, right? Or not so much? Well, as we know, as I know, and if you read my book, you'll learn, (laughs) there's actually no evidence. This is fascinating to me. You know, it is such an assumption we have that sports build character. But, you know, there's a a meta-analysis done not long ago of 40 years of research on the impact of sports on character development. And there's no evidence that it's not automatic. In other words, there's no evidence that playing sports improves moral reasoning or sportsmanship. There's no evidence of it. You know, again, it's very hard to convey this fine line between showing that there's no evidence that this exists and also up against everyone who's ever played sports who says sports changed my life. They made me a better person. I learned how to get along with people. I learned discipline, you know, Employers often want to hire athletes, former athletes, because they think they're the most disciplined, the most hardworking. You know, so while there's no evidence that it is automatic that sports build character, there's a lot of certainly anecdotal and there's every reason to believe that sports have an impact on kids' development. But it's po- it can be negative as easily as it can be positive. I think that's a crucial takeaway. You can learn all kinds of bad things in sports. And it's entirely dependent on the context. 
But the point, you know, the, your overall point is that the corruption of youth sports has made the positive takeaways less possible than in the past, right? And the money is one factor. The intensity. Can we talk about that a little bit, the sort of over-specialization and what that can do to kids? Yes. Well, you know, the stakes have changed for kids and parents. And I'm sure you've talked about this in other podcast episodes, but, you know, the whole nature of childhood has changed in the last 50 or so years. And so that now parents, it's not that your parents and my parents didn't love us as much as we love our kids, but they expressed it differently. And, you know, contemporary parents, and I include myself in this, we feel that our kids' accomplishments are a reflection of our skill and talent as parents. And so when kids do well, we, you know, we sort of bask in that reflected glow. And when they do poorly, it's, you know, we feel embarrassed or, you know, need to correct the problem. What our kids do, it seems to be a reflection of our ability as parents. And that's something that's different. I think parents have always been proud of their kids when they've done well, and there's no shame in that. But it, it feels more closely attached to our egos. And this has affected the way the way sports have evolved over the last couple of decades so that as parents are spending more and as more money has trickled into the system, there's more and more pressure for kids to take up one sport at a young age and to play it constantly. And so you have these monetary factors encouraging more play and you have these social kind of, you know, sort of subterranean influences on parents that make it seem like it's really important that our children succeed publicly and then it just becomes very high stakes. I was going to ask, is that specialization, is the goal of it that this kid will then become so good that they'll get scholarships? Or is it just that, like, if you only focus on one thing, you can be the best and I can say my kid is the best soccer player in town. Like, do you have a sense of where that line is for people? I don't, but I think it's kind of all of the above. I mean, I think it's pitched to parents as if you want your kid to stay competitive, you know, they should really join the fourth grade travel lacrosse team. And P.S., the travel lacrosse team in fourth grade now has rankings. You make this point in the book that maybe didn't exist 20 years ago. This idea that your kid is being judged among his or her peers is starting yes. easier and earlier and online and everywhere. And also those teams have, you know, A, B and C levels. So we can start stratifying them when they're eight, and nine years old. And that's just so pernicious and destructive. And, you know, counter to what we like to think sports do, which is to build character and community and camaraderie and teamwork. And that's just utterly corrupting of that. And then it excludes a bunch of kids also at a younger and younger age who don't get to play because they're not good enough to be on the fourth grade lacrosse team. It just, that feels, you're really not getting a lot of lessons in life when you're being told you sit on the sidelines because you're not good. Well, I don't know if you recall the example I give in my book of a woman who runs this like very little humble lacrosse program, like for kids in our town. And she said she gets more and more phone calls from parents asking if it's too late for their kindergartner to start playing lacrosse because, you know, maybe they should have started when they were three. I mean, it's, it's kind of insane. You can't almost even fathom it. But the thinking is that you've got to start earlier and earlier and devote yourself more and more, more time, more expense, if your child is going to have a chance to stay competitive. A lot of it is sort of a fear of missing out. And 
you know, anxiety, parental anxiety. I think parents are so worried about their kids falling behind or being left out somehow. And it also reflecting back on them as, you know, having kind of botched it. But does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because Amy and I have had this debate that my basic view was, I'm going to let my kids, I'm not a sports mom. I don't want to stand on the sidelines. I'll let my kids pursue whatever sport they want in high school. That's what I did. I never played sports as a kid, played volleyball in high school. I wasn't great. I was made the varsity by senior year, whatever. But I mean, we've had this discussion of like, is that even a possibility anymore that you can just be a kid who walks onto a team in the ninth grade? Right, right. I said that you can't play high school basketball if you weren't playing AAU club basketball in grade school in areas with large populations. You won't make the team. I think it's a little bit out on that. And I also think that it depends very much on the sport. There are some sports in which it makes no difference, like running, my favorite sport, you can take it up. Yes, my kid is taking up cross country in ninth grade, never played a sport in his life. No cut. Good job. See, you know what? No cut. And also, you can't help but improve. Like improvement is kind of whether you like it or not, you're going to get better. If you run every day and if you've never run before, and you take it up in ninth grade, you might just suddenly develop, find that you have this talent you didn't know you had. And it doesn't require having started in fourth grade. The skill-based sports... It's, you know, there's more, it's tougher to enter into those sports when if you're a ninth grader and you want to start playing volleyball, say, and meanwhile, your peers started playing when they were eight. So they've been playing for five or six, seven years now, and you're like just starting out. It kind of depends in part on the athleticism of the person. You know, if your son or daughter is like super naturally athletic, they might be able to pick it up. And on the other hand, some of those kids are going to quit because they're tired of it. So, you know, meanwhile, they've just gotten to what should be for many kids, the pinnacle of their play in high school, and they're just sick to death of it. And they don't want to play anymore. There's one thing I wanted to talk about uh, for parents of older kids. It's a very fair thing to be worried about, which is college education costing $300,000 these days at a private college and that an athletic scholarship is not only a way to offset some of those costs that you're not sure how you're going to pay, but a way to get your kid into a, a school. It's a way to make them stand out. Like parents aren't making that up, but that system and the way the colleges recruit athletes, I just wanted to touch on that for a moment, is another way in which youth sports have been corrupted and drifted from their ostensible goals. Yes. Well, and I think to the point where if we did away with college sports, which of course will never happen, it would transform the youth sports landscape. Because it's as colleges have gotten more, at least the perception is that they're so much more competitive. It's a little hard to figure because there's so many more kids applying. But the perception is that they're more competitive. They're much more expensive, as you just said. And it just seems impossible for some, you know, maybe your parents got in and it was a lot. You know, if you're the parent and you remember what it was like for you to get into college. And now it seems like suddenly your child may not be able to get into that school anymore. Okay, well, what's one, you know that colleges need athletes. They need to fill their rosters. That's one kind of guarantee that they will need. Everything else is up in the air because colleges don't want to share what they're actually looking for or what their student body is like. They're very cagey about that. So it makes sense if you're really nervous, again, so much of it has to do with anxiety. If you're nervous about your child's prospects and, you know, the costs seem prohibitive and they are prohibitive and you think, well, maybe I can uh, at least get them into a better college and maybe they'll get some money. Now, the fact is very few kids get money, even though there's $3.6 billion in scholarship money. 
offered athletic scholarships. Only 6% of high school athletes go on to play in college at all, and only 2% get any money at all. So, you know, I've never done the analysis, but I think if you, someone should do this, look at the $693 per child per sport or the higher averages and invested that and figured out what, you know, what that would translate to in 10 years, it would probably be more than the potential scholarship. All that money you spent at the Homewood Suites, you could have put it in a fund for your 529. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's college has made everything that stakes seem so much higher. And of course, that's also where the prestige is. So that's where the desire to be, you know, to have the sticker on the back of the car and to be able to boast of your child's great athleticism and academic aptitude. That's where it all kind of comes to a head. Okay. We need to turn (laughs) this thing around. We need to figure out how we're going to take back the game. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Linda Flanagan. More and more, you hear about the importance of electrolytes as part of staying hydrated because you need the sodium and the potassium, not just the water. And whether you're looking to hydrate during a workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, 7 essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing and without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. They're little packets you can just grab and take with you to mix into your water bottle on the go. My favorite flavor so far, Amy, gotta be the cherry pomegranate. Interesting. My high schooler likes the lemon lime, and she keeps a few handy in her backpack for days that she has practiced after school. These electrolytes have the sodium and the potassium that you need to go with it in the optimal ratio for daily hydration. Visit sportsresearch.com and use code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's sportsresearch, S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate electrolytes order. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. So we get that there's a problem. We got it before. We get it even more now and have drilled down on some of the things that are feeding this problem. But you talk in the book about four pillars to keep us grounded in reality as a parent. So we like in section three to turn our eyes towards the solution. So 
Let's talk a little bit about how we're fighting back and taking back the game. Okay. And I think it's, you know, in writing this, I, I struggle to th- present the ideas on solutions because you know, so much of this can't be done. Some of this can't be done from your own home. These are systemic problems. Yeah. And we talk about this all the time, right? Like you're recycling. Okay, go ahead and recycle. But like if the exactly. polluter is dumping 400 pounds of waste next door, like, okay, you're obsessed with your cans, maybe not. Yes. And it that can make you feel sort of hopeless and cynical and depressed. And yes, you know, I don't want to feed into that. And I do think we, as parents, I always want to emphasize to parents that they, we, I mean, I'm past this now, my kids are older, but have, we have agency. You know, we're not victims of this. We don't have to be victims of this system. And, you know, my four pillars are to kind of hold on to what's important to you. If you kind of try to stick to these pillars, I think it will at least help. The first is to look at your child, you know, and I, when I say look at your child, I mean, it's stop looking at yourself and what you want and really look at them. What is your child like? What does he or she want? Not every kid wants to play sports anyway. And that's fine. There's all kinds of interesting things to do in life. And furthermore, they can just go out and play. So, you know, the first principles, look at your child and let them, they should be the one leading the way. They should be the one deciding, yeah, I really want to go play baseball. I'd like to play soccer. It doesn't have to be, okay, it's time for soccer signups now that you're five. Let them lead the way. Every sports reform organization, this is their first principle. Let your child lead the way. Another is to give them a lot of opportunities. Encourage while letting them lead the way. It's not There's no harm in saying, well, have you thought about, look, there's this other opportunity. You could try Taekwondo. How about dance? You know, maybe, you know, give running a shot. You know, if you're in the position of, Having options, if you're lucky enough to, encourage a variety. Not everyone's going to be great, have great hand-eye coordination. Some maybe will be great runners. In my sport, running, a lot of a lot of teams are filled with kids who couldn't throw or catch, but they can run. <laughs> That's why my kids are heading for running. <laughs> <laughs> no shame in that. More power to them. <laughs> and I think there's another interesting point to that, which I hadn't really thought of as much before having this conversation. When you're looking at your kid, like be honest about your kid, because especially maybe rec sports or team sports or town sports, not so much. But my kid was in gymnastics. And let me tell you, they made me think my kid was the God's gift to gymnastics because then he had to come three days a week and then he had to join the this team and the that team. And people know what to say to you to get you to spend money on your kid's sports. Yes, that's right. I mean, parents need to be so much more skeptical. You know, if you look at your child and you let them sort of take the lead and while encouraging them and just letting them play. I mean, the thing is, we all know exercise is so important, like physical activity is so important for physical and mental health. So we want your kids to be moving, but it doesn't have to be at a field with uniforms. They can just be outside. They can be at the park. You know, they can be with their sibling if they have one. They can be with a neighborhood kid if there are any left in the neighborhood it does not have to be organized to be effective. It might be better like your sons. The other is to keep your family close. That's another recommendation I make because can't emphasize enough the clubs and leagues, they don't care about your family. You care about your family. They don't. And it's not maligning them. It's just, that's not their interest. If you, and the way to keep your family close is to stay local for as long as possible delay until they really want, until the kid really wants to play. 
and keep perspective. That's the other is it's so important to strive. This is one of the hardest things as a parent. You know, we, we live life forwards, but we understand it looking backwards. And it's so hard to understand what's to hold on to what's important when you're caught up in this universe. And if you can take strive to keep perspective, then you'll have a better chance of resisting some of these forces. And, you know, one woman told me whose daughters were her three daughters, I coached three of them, and they were good athletes. She said, you know, this community conspires to make you lose perspective. It just seems much more important than it is. So I encourage parents, younger parents who are in the midst of this to talk to older parents who've been through it. And there's always this temptation, oh, things have changed. It's not the same. And yes, that is true. Things are changing, but some things are, will always remain true. And sports just aren't that important. They're not that important to the long-term development of a person. As long as kids are active and encouraged to be active and their parents love them, demonstrate that love. And finally, I think another unappreciated value for parents is to model what, how you want them, model a happy adulthood. The great psychologist Madeline Levine said this, offered this up to me, is that, you know, when we as parents grumble around driving our kids constantly hither and yon and spend every weekend at some, you know, damp lacrosse field or soccer at some tournament somewhere. And I don't know about you, but I, that wasn't very satisfying for me. I think you're modeling kind of a grim view of adulthood. And it's her point that, look, if you, we want our kids to look forward to being adults, to not have it be some sort of, you know, unfortunate, inexorable reality that they're just going to have to, you know, resolve. Life is hard work and then it's harder work. Yeah. You know, and that adulthood should be something that a prize, you know, that you get more freedom and you can go about your business as you please to, that you're not like sort of an indentured servant to your children's activities. And I, I think that's a, like a very valuable insight to keep in mind. And of course, I think having been a coach for so long, that's parents need to model, you know, gratitude and kindness to coaches. I mean, not all coaches are great. I'm the first to acknowledge that. But I do think most are trying to do the best they can. And many are volunteers and, you know, could be you the ones, you know, figuring out the lineup and doing the best you can and getting flack and just say please and thank you a lot. Don't badmouth the coach and to develop your own life, you know, cultivate your own interests so you can demonstrate to your kids that, yeah, I, of course I love you, but, and I care deeply about you, but I have my own life too. And that's important. And it's important for you to see that I have my own life. As my parents did, I never doubted their fondness for me, just, but there's no way in hell they would have driven me or my siblings all over the country for a game. There's no way. And it wasn't because it was just like, that just wasn't going to happen. You know, I have cousins, my husband's cousin's family. They have done this, have raised four athletes. Their youngest child was just recruited by the NHL. So, I mean, this ending is possible. And I just want to close by saying, we're not saying this is bad for every family or never the answer, but it's definitely not always the answer. And there's many, many ways to, for your kids to have a relationship to sports. Yes. That is not so intense, so demanding, expensive. There are ways to be active and to enjoy athletics. I mean, as a coach, I always, my goal was to encourage a lifelong interest in sports, a lifelong interest in activity, running, because that's the goal. To me, the goal of youth sports should be to get kids interested in moving, 
and enjoying it. And it doesn't have to be end up, you don't have to have a D1 career in sports or make it to the pros. I mean, good for you if you can and you do and you love it. And there are some husbands and nephews, I mean, good for him. That works for some people. It's just, you know, it's much more rare than, you know, the number of participants would suggest. We've been talking to Linda Flanagan, the author of the book, Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids Sports and Why It Matters. Tell us, Linda, where people can find you, find the book and learn more about this topic. Well, you can find me by Googling me. I'm afraid (laughs) I don't have a website at the moment, but I do have a lot of articles out there, both for The Atlantic and for Mindshift, which is an education blog, an NPR education blog. And you can find my book. You can find it anywhere. The books are sold, as they say. Certainly get it on Amazon. I, I would hope your local bookstore. I'm at Linda Flanagan, too, on Twitter. I'd love to have more followers. I try to tweet more and more. There's a lot going on, obviously, beyond sports, but I try to tweet about sports as much as I can. Stay plugged in. We'll put a link to your recent article in The Atlantic, just came out, to the book, to MindShift, all the places you can find Linda. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.